Kristen Rawls. And I'm Jeff Eaton. This is Christian Rightcast, the podcast where we historicize and contextualize the American Christian right and authoritarian strains in it to help you understand American politics today. Um, today we've got an episode from Jeff. He's going to talk more about these end times narratives and kind of um, how they became so... Um, uh, ubiquitous in the United States in, in, in popular culture and, and, and things like yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it, it, it's funny yeah. because, um, you know, this is something that I've, I've always been kind of interested in in part mm-hmm. because, um, and I, I don't think I mentioned this in the previous episode, but there was a period mm-hmm. in my life where I, where I basically wrote like a zine and among other things, I reviewed tons of Christian books. And that was Mm -hmm. in the late eighties, early to mid nineties window where like the, the apocalypse end times rapture novel phenomenon was like really (laughs) at full steam. And so like, I actually read just piles and piles of these books um, and like wrote reviews of them. And, you know, I can look back and it was like, oh, wow, those, a lot of those were just terrible novels. And, you know, (laughs) I only read a couple of them. So you're definitely the resident expert on this. Expert feels like a very (laughs) strong word, but, um, but yeah. So welcome to part two of our series. Um, it's it, we said that it's like a series about the end times or apocalypse narratives and it's so just to give a little bit of background uh, if anybody's coming in after last episode like apocalypse narratives is the umbrella term that we're using to describe a whole bunch of like interrelated beliefs that basically boil down to the world's going to end god's going to come back and punish evildoers and reward the faithful and the bible has prophecies that explain it all in detail if you're willing to read them carefully enough like there are tons of different variations on it, but that's sort of the core of it. And depending on how plugged in you are to religious fundamentalism, you may know it by things like, you know, the second coming or the rapture or the end times or the day of the Lord. Um, and these ideas have lots of variations, but they're at the heart of pop culture ephemera, like uh, the Left Behind novels and movies. And they're tied up with like some of the religious rights, most controversial political stances. And they're also a crucial bridge between political conservatism in American evangelicals and conspiracy theories like QAnon and stuff like that. And um, so before we dive in, I want to, again, like just wave a flag with what I think is kind of turning into a standard content warning here on this show. And specifically in this series, we're going to be delving into ideologies and stories that could be difficult for people with a history of religious abuse or trauma. And I, you know, I don't want anybody to be caught off guard by the material that we're covering. And if you've been on the receiving end of that kind of religious abuse or trauma, you're probably the last person who needs an explainer podcast about left behind. So, you know, (laughs) you, you, you don't need to feel like you're missing out on a lot here. Um, But we just wanted to make sure that, you know, everybody at least had a moment to take a breather and, you know, sort of expect what's coming up. We're not, we're not going to be dwelling on anything particularly like lurid or, you know, I think, you know, traumatizing, but it it can, it can dredge up some, some, (laughs) some memories for folks who were in that scene, so to speak. Um, 
So last episode, like we covered, I think, sort of three cr crucial ideas. The first was like the history of apocalypse narratives, like thousands of years of it. And the, the idea that they came out of like resistance literature and prophetic books by like Jewish writers during the Babylonian captivity, centuries before Christianity even got on the scene. And um, it was like a genre that used like vivid mystic symbolism and epic conflicts between good and evil to make sense out of like persecution and disappointment and and dire circumstances. And apocalyptic, apocalyptic literature was very pessimistic about the present world. Like, you know, it's, you know, we're, we're surrounded by powerful empires that want to defeat us and oppress us. And, you know, there's all these promises we have from God about how we'll, we'll thrive and have a wonderful home. And these, these have been unfulfilled. And now we're, you know, we're on the run. But, but at the same time, it was pessimistic about the present world apocalyptic literature also looked forward to a time when God would eventually come and fix everything and everyone would have to acknowledge that his faithful believers had been correct and a new better world would replace the crappy one. Um, right. And, you know, those themes were present in early Christianity too. And it really took off after the destruction of Jerusalem by Rome and all of the persecution mm -hmm. that followed. And like one of the best known artifacts of that period is the last book in the Christian Bible, the Revelation of John or the book mm -hmm. of Revelation. And that's right. where a lot of our culture's like apocalyptic vocabulary comes from, like the Battle of Armageddon, the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse, the Antichrist, mm -hmm. 666 as the mark of the beast. All that stuff is like imagery from Revelation that was present in that particular apocalypse story. Yeah. Um, and the second big idea from the last episode was like the transition that happened when Christianity became the official religion of Rome. And it went from sort of this narrative of persecution at the hands of a powerful empire that really shaped Christianity's earliest years, and it flipped it on its head. And like within just a hundred years or so, other religions, Judaism included, were outlawed. And the persecution that Christians faced from that point on in like Europe was primarily at the hands of other Christians over doctrinal disputes and political power struggles, right. not denominational disputes. Right. right. Yeah. It was like, you know, interdenominational disputes inside. It was like Lutherans persecuting Mennonites or, or Catholics and, you know, other denominations coming to blow. Yeah. Right. And like, right. A, even like a lot of America, you know, when, Christian like dominionists in America talk about like America's Christian heritage being, you know, going out and seeking religious freedom. Like that was Christians seeking freedom yeah. from other Christian groups that were attacking yeah. them for being the wrong kind of Christian groups. And like that, like, so even that narrative that today is often seen as like, you know, ah, oh, yes, Christians. It's like, yeah, but they were the ones that were picking on each other too. And the, the whole Mormon narrative yes. about persecution by the United States government. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. so like, but th that like weird, like transition of this strong narrative of persecution and how we endure in the face of it and how we hold on to these promises from God, it, it getting flipped on its head. I, 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 it really seems to have like hit the frap button on like a lot of narratives that seemed to be very clear, but then got confusing because they were in charge. How do you really make sense of, you know, apocalyptic stories about persecuted people on the run, you know, being saved from the people in charge when you're the ones who are in charge? When, yeah, when you're a religion of empire. And, exactly. Yeah. 
Um, That's persecuting other religion, exactly. Um, so. And I, you know, and that, and you know, as we said last episode, that's a kind of theme that I think we can even see in the Christian right today. You know, that there's a strong narrative yeah. of persecution, despite the fact that, like, we have literally never had a president in America who did not claim to be a practicing Bible-believing Christian. Like, right. you know, it mm -hmm. like for all of the anger about you know, anti-Christian bias, like literally every president of our country has claimed to be a Christian. I mean, and Biden is only the second Catholic. Mm -hmm. So yeah, the second non-Protestant. Yeah. It's it, like, it, there's a fairly narrow range even inside of the umbrella of Christianity. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, so like the, that, that sort of table flip that happened, um, it didn't dim the interest in end times prophecies in the Bible, though, and the power oh. of those apocalyptic narratives didn't like fade. And over the millennia that followed, like tons of different people and groups and movements developed different ways to understand those parts of the Bible and like make sense of that apocalyptic content, the prophecies about the end that would come and the final conflict between good and evil. And for some believers, that meant like reframing it as an allegory, like this is about how we struggle against evil, not a particular mm -hmm. prediction. But others like read the apocalyptic narratives as like coded language about past events that biblical authors couldn't safely reference while they were under Roman rule and stuff like that. But mm -hmm. there was there's there's always been like a strong contingent in the church that has insisted that um, Revelation and all of those other apocalyptic books that are sort of associated with it in the Bible are explicit messages from God about specific future events. And those groups have often like developed complicated systems to interpret those books like dense symbolism and stuff like that in a consistent unified timeline. And that's the final piece from last week that sets up where we're going to go here. That like, the third piece was one, the dawn of one of those specific systems of sort of interpretation of Bible prophecy called premillennial dispensationalism. And we're not going to get into all of the details about that because we covered them pretty, you know, we, we, we dove in last episode. But basically, in, in the mid 1800s, um, it sort of grew up out of a couple of different religious movements, and it was particularly fixed on the idea of the rapture, this sort of supernatural kidnapping where all of the real true Christians vanished to go to heaven. And once that happened, Israel would become a nation again, and then the Antichrist would take over the world, and the rest of the apocalyptic timeline would play out before Jesus returned for a final battle and a triumphant reign as the undeniable ruler of reality, and et cetera, et cetera. Um, and dispensationalism has always been fairly controversial in Christian circles, like the broad Christian circles that we referred to, you know, sort of the, the ultimate big Christian tent. Dispensationalism has never been like something everybody believed by any means, but it's also, it has been extremely popular. Um, yeah, but it is the more the preoccupation of fundamentalists. Of right. Yes. And not just fundamentalists, but charismatics, Baptists, people who are n like not in any kind of a reformed tradition would, would not. Right. And you know? like, I think two of the books um, that we mentioned in the previous episode that like spend a little more time digging into a sort of background of that are um, 
uh, Matthew Avery Sutton's American Apocalypse and Jonathan Edwards' Super Church. I think we we even quoted a couple of those previous episodes, but like they they cover some some of that arc of you know of that. But um, so that's that's where we're at. Um, it's like the cusp of the 20th century, you know, end of the 1800s. And there's this new Bible prophecy system, you know, making waves in various Protestant denominations. And at the same time, there's also this growing dust up in evangelical circles. And there's this movement that is explicitly calling itself fundamentalism that is trying to like lay claim to this idea of a pure unsullied version of Christianity, which I I think in the very first episode, you talked about uh, like the concept of primitivism in, Mm. in. That's one way of, yeah, of of thinking about, about that kind of idea. Yeah. Yeah. It's not like this is the official designation of it, but it's like this, the impulse that it would be so much better if we could just return to how it was originally. Um, and that like was a real animating force in fundamentalism. It was, you know, all these new movements and new ways of interpreting the Bible, et cetera, et cetera. You know, no, we're just going to return to the fundamentals. Um, and mm-hmm. a series of essays about the fundamentals was actually how it, how the name fundamentalism became its sort of, you know, its label. Um, mm-hmm. Now, we're not going to spend a lot of time on the details of fundamentalism, and but it did become like dispensationalism in particular did become very popular inside of portions of American fundamentalism. Um, but I think the, the, the piece that we're going to actually look a bit closer at than the purely theological side of that is something that I've found really interesting. And, and it's something that ended up going on to really define a lot of the, the next century of like, American evangelical Christianity, like the, the the 20th century. And it really transformed dispensationalism from a theological movement into that like pillar of pop culture, the mm-hmm. like the eschatology you've heard of kind of a thing. Um, yeah. And it, so it, this is, well, okay. My favorite, it's not saying it's my favorite is probably the wrong word, but it's definitely one of the things that I find most interesting in terms of twists. And it's the rise of Christian publishing companies. Um, so like for centuries, you know, Christian groups had mass produced Bibles and published like commentaries and sermons and tracts and stuff like that. Um, and like university presses published Bible commentaries and Bibles and theological works. But, by the late 1800s, um, around the same time dispensationalism was catching on, that started evolving into like a real business concern. The idea of oh. Christian publishers as a business, not just like a mission that you would be on. Um, and if you want to dig into some of this, um, a, a book that I think is really fascinating and and is covers a covers a lot of this history it's a super church or sorry um super church covers some of it um but daniel vaca's book um evangelicals incorporated um is also a really really fascinating read because it focuses in particular on how dispensationalism spread dovetailed with the growing success of one of the first like powerhouse religious publishing companies, the Fleming Revell Publishing Company. Wow. 
what? I've never does Revel does that exist? Today? It still does. It's now it was like bought out and it's now a division of Baker Books. Um which Oh, I know it. Yeah, yeah. I'm on next so i've heard of they they put out so many books yes and, wow. and so they, they just celebrated their 150th anniversary a little while ago oh my god i had no idea that that was so old. so the wow. fascinating part is that is that fleming Ravel was dwight mm -hmm. moody's brother-in-law and okay. the company was originally formed in the 1870s to publish Dwight L. Moody's sermons and tracts and Bible courses. And there's like a whole episode in the way that Dwight, Dwight L. Moody married like pull yourself up by your bootstraps Americanism with like reverence for businessmen and like made that vibe central to the gospel message. But that's oh, interesting. There, there's a whole nother you know, thing to go down with that track. But What's interesting for the apocalypse topic is that Moody was also one of those high-profile revivalist preachers in America who adopted dispensationalism. Yeah, that's all I know about Yeah, him. and, and, and he, he, like, surrounded himself with other dispensationalist preachers and teachers as he staffed up his church and the Bible school he founded. And Ravel, as the Moody-adjacent publishing house of record, turned their preaching yeah. and teaching into published materials, too. And they sold like hotcakes, um, not necessarily through bookstores like traditional publishers, but like at revival meetings and at theological conventions, like attendees snapped them up both to keep up on like the latest thinking in dispensationalist theology. And, and then as demand grew, Ravel also would recruit new authors at those conventions. And it turned into kind of a feedback loop for the dispensationalist book boom. Um, oh, and and Ravel wasn't the only Christian publisher at the time, but like they were definitely one of the earliest and the ones that like and the one that like rode that initial boom. Like within a now, these these were like um, self help dispensationalism or like well, initially what? initially a lot of them were like theology books. They were okay. you know arguments about why this is a proper way to interpret scripture and, you know, stuff like that. And the audience for a lot of these things was other Christians or other teachers. Right. Um, and, you know, there's, there's some fascinating stuff about how a lot of the demand for Christian literature at the time was also tied in with like the growing interest in like standardizing and industrializing education and stuff like that. And the concept of Sunday school was just getting yeah. started and stuff like that. So like there was lots of demand for like trustworthy literature about spiritual well, topics. Seems like a very American. Is Sunday school an American invention? Yes, it is. <laughs> yeah, I could have. Yeah, that's not surprising. <laughs> so, like, all, all of these different threads are pulling together. And the result is that dispensationalism and, like, this christian literature boom go hand in hand um mm. and there's a there's a quote from evangelicals incorporated um that i i wanted to call out here um it says by investing early in premillennialism and dispensationalism the Ravel company not only presented its books as means by which christians could acquire the certainty they sought but also championed the therapeutic orientation of consumer capitalism like a, yeah 
self-help part yeah exactly um <laughs> and like other commercial publishers Ravel and its authors argued that their books offered the assistance consumers needed um this sales pitch helped Ravel sell nearly 90,000 copies of of um uh D.L. Moody's book Heaven where it is its inhabitants and how to get there within like four years and although dispensationalist literature may seem less straightforwardly therapeutic than books about heaven and how to get there, both genres invited consumers from across the spectrum of denominations to treat their consumption of books as a means to achieving relief from uncertainty. Um, and Vaca's book like explicitly ties that to like the the hunger for self help and self self betterment and the eventual like evangelicalism of the 60s and 70s that was very tied in with like therapeutic culture um and the influence of new thought again yep <laughs> it it you know it's all of these different threads just really come together in fascinating ways mm -hmm. um and like you know vaga's book has a really fascinating and like well-developed take on like the interplay between the Christian media industry as an industry and its role as like a sort of spiritual mission um, and how the tension between those things has affected like evangelicalism and fundamentalism. And I don't want to get too far off that theme, but I, I do think his that thesis is that he has is a really fascinating aspect of one of those things that we see bubble up on the Christian right a lot. You know, the that tension between a missional goal to like, you know, spread the gospel and then a very like just almost confusing level of of um, you know, intermingling with um, business interests and, you know, very, very secular movements that you would think might be at odds with, um, with the gospel. But this sort of, you know, the, the, he, he sees this rise of the publishing industry and its, uh, and its willingness to marry the, the finances of big publishing with the missional statement you know as as a real sort of foundational sort of template for some of that stuff it, it, it's a fascinating read yeah that is fascinating. um and and the other angle of that is that that tension also sort of anticipates criticism from within fundamentalism too um like there, there's another quote from later in the book where he says that through bookstores, supermarket checkout aisles, television talk shows, and more, a diverse spectrum of spiritual seekers participate in evangelical markets, which is the term he uses for like consumption of evangelical materials, even if someone doesn't fit the the theological strictures of fundamentalism. Oh, yeah, that was, I mean, I saw that with everybody reading Left Behind. In yep. The yep. Yeah. And, and he actually, and he says that, you know, part, part of that deep tension is that, um, although some critics argue that it like dilutes and juvenilizes or corrupts the, you know, religious faith, um, mm -hmm. that activity is also what allowed evangelicalism to loom so large in American religious yeah. history and culture in the 20th century. And I, I think that is a really fascinating like read and it, it, it is really yeah. clicked a couple of lights on for me. 
Uh, yeah, that's that seems pretty persuasive like as an argument. I agree. And now, so for the purpose of this episode, there's a whole lot of stuff in like the World War One and World War Two period that I'm just going to cruise right past, um, mm-hmm. like the rise of fundamentalism as an explicit offshoot of the evangelical movement movie was a part of and like the, you know, dispensationalism, you know, there was criticism from a lot of sectors inside of Christianity, but like it was also booming inside of um, some of those evangelical fundamentalist, you know, movements and like a lot of Bible colleges and, and seminaries that are still around today, like the Dallas Theological Seminary, like were hubs of dispensationalist theology, uh, you know, in that period. And, you know, they published books by the bushelful and their sermons and, you know, preaching. And, and I think the, the phrase I used, you know, earlier was like, it sort of became the eschatology you've heard of for a lot of Christians who might not have otherwise ever really deeply engaged with like, how do we interpret biblical prophecy? Um, right. But yeah, I mean, like I can, I don't even, I never heard a sermon about it. I never heard, like I grew up reformed mm-hmm. really. So I, I, yeah. So the only exposure I had to it was in pop culture. So yeah, it's, it's, it's that whole like engine of, uh, engine of publishing and commerce that, uh, that gets the word out, but yeah. Oh yeah. So curiously, um, like one of the big hiccups for dispensationalism um, came when one of its biggest predictions actually came true Um, in 1940 in 1948 after like decades of wrangling between the UN and Great Britain and like Palestinians living in Palestine, Israel actually became an independent recognized by the UN nation again. And from the from a fundamental from a dispensationalist standpoint, this is basically like putting all of your money on black and winning like it. it, it, It's huge because, you know, since the 1870s, like Israel is restored as a nation was one of the big like markers on the end times timeline. Um, And yet they're also wrong. Because according to the dispensationalist timeline that Darby had outlined originally, that they'd stood by for decades, all the Bible-believing Christians were supposed to get raptured first. And then Israel was supposed to become a nation. Okay. Um, Which is simultaneously exciting and embarrassing um, for certain Folks. I mean, like maybe it just had nothing to do with prophecy and had, you know, you know th- that could be or... it, could be it. But what they decided <laughs> was that, um, you know, what what really what they really just needed to do was just sort of rework rework the timeline a little. Oh yeah. Um, and you know, it it turned out that despite the sort of head scratching that went on in like the theological, you know, camps of dispensationalism, the people who really like were, you know, out there building the timelines and making the charts and everything. um, Mm -hmm. It didn't end up being much of a speed bump. Um, And the primary, you know, takeaway was this is undeniable proof. This happened and it was, you know, it's, undeniable proof that our read of Bible prophecy is correct. And the collective attempt to like 
reshuffle the timeline to make things, you know, work again, ended up producing a more diverse landscape of dispensationalist writers. And they were all sort of free to argue that maybe the rapture is what comes next, or maybe the Antichrist is going to arrive next, or maybe one of these other critical signs is about to happen next. Because, right. you know, it's anybody's timeline is, you know, a, is, you know, just as plausible. Um, and in, in the book Super Church that I've mentioned a couple of times, uh, Jonathan Edwards actually argues that, like, the outcome of this, like, you know, unexpected hiccup was actually that dispensationalism became something that was able to more successfully, like, shift and adapt itself to changing events as mm. time went on. And the various events in its timeline became sort of more of, a, like, a buffet that rather than a strict sequence and rapture mm -hmm. watchers could like look at future events, look at current events and find something from that pile of apocalyptic symbolism that matched and announce the prophecies are coming true. Right. And write books about it and publish books and sell them. Um, and like around that time, like, you know, the 1950s, that's when like the Christian Booksellers Association was formed and like Billy Graham was starting oh, to I, get them. Yeah. Now if you're too liberal, they kick, they stop. Yeah. They yep. stop including your books. I, you know what, who, who told me that was, um, Frank Schaefer. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> that they'll, they'll start refusing to to hawk your books if you if you veer too far to the left and that's that's always the danger you know because if you, you yeah. start casting this bigger tent and you've got this broad like audience that's hungry for like christian content but perhaps in a a, a more I'll, I'll say maybe a less rigorous way you know they're mm -hmm. not as interested in theology they're interested in essentially self-help that's christian flavored um, right. You know. So this is before the Amish romance period. Yes. Yes. This is like <laughs> this is like the like the nineteen fifties. Let's okay. say the fifties and sixties, and like right, right, right. Like Publishers Weekly when it did their like hundred and fifty years of Ravel Publishing like mm -hmm. retrospective thing. Um, it talked about like Ravel hitting its stride in this period of time because not only was it doing all these theological books, um, it was also doing celebrity books. Um, like in 1953, they did one um, by Dale Evans, um, who was married to Roy Rogers. Like Dale Evans and Roy Rogers, okay. um, you know. Uh huh. Um, yeah. And Dale Evans wrote a book called Angel Aware about um Ugh. the death of their young daughter and like you okay. know how what it what she learned about eight oh i feel bad for going ugh about that okay, uh, no i mean but but like yeah. th that idea <laughs> of like even back in the 50s, yeah. oh, a terrible thing happened to me, but let's write a book about angels yeah, and publish sure, it yeah. and it becomes a celebrity memoir and it's published by right. Ravel. Like that kind of stuff was becoming the sort of engine of their business. Um, okay. And if that feels like a little off, like compared to like that tightly wound sort of image that I think a lot of people have about fundamentalism, you know, that that's right. And that's like the tension that uh, Daniel Vaca talks about in his book. You know, he yeah. sees evangelicalism and fundamentalism as sort of like torn between that impulse to return to purity that we talked about yeah. and like the legitimacy that they feel like should come with that purity. 
torn okay. between that and like the desire to have this big broad reach um and yeah i'm yeah that was sort of like guideposts was doing right, right? um mm-hmm. and with more simplest simple more like yeah yeah and you know, and you can see that even today, where like you know, there's lots of trendy Christian culture stuff that mm-hmm. is just as unpopular among like fundamentalist, hardcore you know mm-hmm. folks as it is among secular folks who just think it's sort of passe, but for totally mm-hmm. different reasons. You know, they you know one thinks, well, this is cheesy, and then the fundamentalists are <laughs> saying this is watering down. Unbib- it's unbiblical, yeah, right, yeah. Okay. Um, but at the same time, you know, with you look at you know the evangelicals incorporated sort of core thesis is that despite that frustration with the watering down, that broad reach is what ends up being critical to the Christian right, having this sort of broad cultural impact that big tent and the big business of Christian publishing, it, it rewards pop culture appeal. It treats commercial success as essentially simultaneous, simultaneous, uh, sorry, it essentially is synonymous with, um, you know, spiritual truth. Um, mm-hmm. But like as much as the Christian right is like deeply frustrated by that, it's also like, how do you how do you say no to this growing idea of you representing this broad Christian consensus about faith? You know, mm-hmm. it's it's real hard to put that, you know, to put that down. <laughs> yeah. Um, and like the the trajectory here is like, you know, there were I think in, in 1950, and these are numbers from um uh Christianity Today article about the Christian publishing industry, there are about three hundred evangelical retail stores, like what we would now consider like a Christian bookstore. Oh, right? that's small. That's oh in nineteen yes, fifty. Oh, I thought you were saying now. I was no. like, well, that's but it. Like that okay. was like doubling every decade or so so like it was up to 700 in the early 60s like by the 70s it was almost 2000 and like Mm -hmm. by the 90s 7000 like you know it it was really scaling up we had one at the mall and then we had one at a shopping center it was called family christian and bookstore and just to bring it back um the the company the, the original name of family christian bookstores was mm-hmm. Zondervan Christian Bookstores. Oh, they're also a big publishing house. Exactly. Yeah. And that Zondervan brings mm-hmm. us to our next sort of tipping point. Okay. Um, in like this end times prophecy book of the month industry story. Mm-hmm. Um, because Zondervan was the publishing company that published a book called The Late Great Planet Earth. Oh, really? Yeah. No. So, (laughs) like, oh boy. Um, So, like, okay. So, again, you know, we we sort of skipped over some timeline stuff here, but like the the growth of this industry and the role of like Christians writing books about theology and Christian living for other Christians, Mm -hmm. but it's slowly turning into more of a broad market appeal. That's like the Mm -hmm. the trajectory that things have been on. But like biblical prophecy and dispensationalism in particular, Mm -hmm. isn't one of those real crossover topics for for a long time. You know, Dale Evans Mm. writing about angels is not the same as, you know, here's how you correctly calculate the number of days until the end times based on (laughs) when King Darius was alive. 
Um, right. You know, different thing. But by the mm-hmm. 70s, like, there's lots of different worldwide themes that are, like, sort of stacking up as a big pile of I told you so for dispensationalist, mm-hmm. um, right. you know, theologians. Like, Israel becoming a nation in 48, and then in 1967, in particular, after the Six-Day War, um, they regained control of Jerusalem and the original site of, you know, the the temple that was uh, destroyed by the Romans in 90 AD. And that was, like, oh, another yeah. one of those dispensationalist, mm-hmm. you know, slam dunks. Um, but mm-hmm. beyond just that, like the Cold War was sort of really reaching its peak with nuclear fears. The Cuban Missile Crisis, like, was mm-hmm. still fresh in a lot of memories, um, and it had brought like everybody to essentially the brink of nuclear war. Um, groups like the Club of Rome were making the case, like, very publicly that the world's population was going to collapse the planet. The Club of Rome? Is it... What is that? Okay. Oh boy. So they were uh, the. I, I surely like there's an episode of behind the bastards that must touch. Okay. Of, so they're uh, a, sort of an eco-fascist. <laughs> you know, I, I would be uncomfortable um, mm-hmm. characterizing too much good or bad about okay. the club of Rome without doing a, a deep dive in and of itself. Okay. But right. I do know that inside of conservative religious groups, the Club of Rome was often held up for many years as a very dangerous group that used threats about environmental collapse as like a way to encourage abortion and, you know, stuff like that. Um, But like they were explicitly like a group of different intellectuals and, you know, business people and stuff that were arguing that Earth couldn't sustain itself. The way we were going. Yeah. Um, okay. And like Rachel Carson's book, Silent Spring, about like pesticides wiping out birds and insects had oh, come yeah, out yeah. like within like a, you know, I think about maybe five to 10 years of that range. So like, and it was, okay. it, it got a lot mm-hmm. of cultural traction. And like, this was also still mm-hmm. less than a decade since Kennedy had been assassinated. And yeah. like there were terrorist groups like the Weather Underground that were like literally detonating bombs at government buildings in Washington D.C. Mm-hmm. and like, mm-hmm. so like it it it's it was a contentious time in America, yeah. and there was a real sense that like the post-war optimism of like infinite American success and things just continuing to get better, like there was a you know in it it it. There were some, you know, there were some dings uh, in that armor. There was some, you know, encroaching and, pessimism. Yeah, pessimism and anxiety, you know, yeah. deep, deep mm-hmm. anxiety. And that's when a guy named Hal Lindsey decides to write a book about Bible prophecy. Um, yeah. It's not a theological treatise on how to interpret Bible, the Bible, but instead it's like a little paperback book with this sucker punch title, The Late Great Planet Earth. And its basic message is everything is scary right now. It's getting worse. But these ancient prophecies spell it all out and tell you what's going to come come in the future. Oh, no. And it just explodes. Um, so, like, mm-hmm. Hal Lindsey was basically a Sunday school teacher and a speaker in Southern California at the time. Um, okay. He'd gone to Dallas Theological Seminary, <laughs> one, you know, oh, one of, of those dispensationalist, you know, sort of centers of theology and learning that, you know, got anchored in place in the in the early parts mm-hmm. of the 20th century. Um, 
And then after that, he'd worked with uh, Campus Crusade for Christ for a few years in the 60s. Oh, yeah. And Mm -hmm. he decides he's going to write a book about Bible prophecy, specifically dispensationalist, you know, theology Mm -hmm. and its take on Bible prophecy for like the skeptical hip generation of the 70s. And what year does this come out? This is 1970. Okay. And like he wants to reach... Um, you know, the ones who see through all the, you know, the squares and the rituals of church, but care about the truth. <laughs> um, and there's a, there's a book, um, What Would Jesus Read by um, Aaron A. Smith um, okay. that covers like basically what Christians have read through time. And like oh. it, 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 it's, it attempts to reconstruct certain ideas about the beliefs and theologies of different groups that didn't necessarily write explicitly about them by looking at Mm -hmm. what they read and what they talked about um and she there's also an excerpt about um specifically about the late great planet earth um Mm -hmm. that was published on um the uh, national endowment for the humanities website that's adapted from uh, her book what would jesus read i'm going to put a link to it in the show notes but um it's really fascinating um and she she covers some of this material, but um, the the idea is that um, <laughs> he explicitly decides he's going to go target you know the the sort of the gener- the youth generation that doesn't right. want to go you know put on a suit and go to church and listen to a bunch of people talk about theology. They just want to know what's up. Um, okay, and the result is like a theological mess. Um, even even a lot of dispensationalists slagged on the late great planet Earth, and like really? ca- called it like lurid and sloppy and stuff like that. Ooh, um, okay. But like it was also like the eschatology version of a Malcolm Gladwell book. Like it, <laughs> it like it, it it popularized and framed and turned complex ideas into something fairly breezy. Um, have to spend ten thousand hours preparing yeah. <laughs> to to truly to truly be one of the elect. You have to make ten thousand rapture charts. Um, yeah, but but like you know, like as an example, like you know, it, 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 like Lindsay would like make claims like, and you know, the nation of Gog in the Book of Revelation represents the nation of Russia today, and like would back it up with like a single footnote pointing to an article in time magazine and just move on. Like, so like it's, it's paperback length in part because it just breezes through tons of like, Oh, I see. We're just taking that as a given now sorts of things. Um, and, but it also assumed that its reader was a kind of like spiritually curious seeker rather than a person who went to church and it opened by talking about astrology and fortune telling and then frames the bible and bible prophecy as like a more proven and accurate way to understand an uncertain future than all of those things you know and it it like really flatters the reader with like you know with it opens with stuff like you know some of you may find this material very dry and uninteresting but if you're the sort that's curious to learn these ancient truths read on you know like that kind of vibe yeah um and it took the basic structure of premillennialist dispensational theology and Mm -hmm. like the combination of 
pro-Israel and anti-communist politics that was be- that was starting to become like a hallmark of the emerging evangelical right mm-hmm. and yeah. wove that into like an apocalyptic narrative and very specific warnings about how quickly everything is moving towards the big climax of the end times. And it sold like hotcakes. Um, mm-hmm. It was like super popular with like hippie converts from the Jesus people movement. Sure. My parents had copies of it. Do you um, know how many copies it sold? <sighs> um, multiple millions. Um, yeah. Okay. <clears throat> I, I like, wow. it still sells. I mean, not as well wow. as it did, obviously, but like it was a genuine bestseller. Uh-huh. Um, okay. And it, it was published by Zondervan. Um, and Zondervan was like a Bible and book publisher that only really sold inside Christian bookstores or directly to churches or by mail order. Um, Mm -hmm. so it didn't appear on the New York times bestseller list. Um, and like it sold a half a million copies, like right out of the gate, just via mail order in churches and Christian bookstores. And it was like, it made a splash. Um, Mm -hmm. And it was very quickly picked up by Bantam Books for distribution in secular bookstores. And they gave it a new cover. They didn't change any of the actual content of it, but they redesigned the cover to look like the cover of Chariots of the Gods. Um, Is that the one that looks like the planet on fire or something? No, it's just like these big block letters, like someone carved these big letters. You know, it's it's like very distinctive, like... 60s 70s crossover graphic design like okay. stuff but if you put chariots of the gods paperback copy and like mm-hmm. uh and and hal Lindsay's book next to each other it's like oh yeah clearly they they were oh okay they they, they made a cover that looks like the chariots of the gods cover um mm-hmm. and like chariots of the gods was like basically a new age hit that claimed that like ancient aliens had visited earth in the past oh i, I don't know i haven't heard of it okay yeah okay. it's like if you've ever watched like the you know ancient aliens on show on cable like stuff from chariots of the gods still bubbles up in i've definitely never watched that oh, man. I, feel, I feel like we're learning so much about my trash <laughs> media consumption um, but okay. it, but like also critically in addition to like sort of giving it this uh, this you know th- this makeover um mm-hmm. they also put it next to the new age and sci-fi books in okay, secular bookstores yeah. instead mm-hmm. of in the Christian living section and marketed yeah. it as like one of these kinds of books. And yeah. it became a real genuine cultural phenomenon. It sold millions mm-hmm. of copies and it like defined the, it like carved out like a crossover market for books about Bible prophecy and like books warning people what to expect in the end times and how to survive and, you know, avoided by following jesus um and it launched hal Lindsay into a career that continues to this day like he's still on the air he's 91 oh my god i didn't even know he was still alive okay still cranking away Uh, like a a radio show um he was on um i forget which uh which one of the um uh, Christian televangelists, uh, cable networks. He he had a regular show on um, oh, for wow. years. Okay. Then he ended up going and doing his own radio show. But like he he's been kicking around for forever, um, and he's kept writing books. Um, yeah, he even he even did. Uh, I I won't subject anyone to it, but he did a really terrible 
um, rapture novel uh, in the 90s okay. too called Blood Moon um, that it it it's I struggle to describe how bad it is. Did it sell well though? Nah, not really. By that okay. time they were much better like e even in Cooler the e even in the anemic genre of rapture novels there were yeah. much better options by that oh, time. Oh okay. Um but like you know it, it has a scene in which um like Jesus comes back to judge everyone and tells the pope that he's evil and um pushes and shoves the pope and the pope falls down a giant hole into hell. Oh my god. That's well, that's intense. And it just it the, So yeah, that's one thing we haven't talked about. This is a, this is deeply anti-Catholic. Yeah, yeah, this kind of dispensationalism generally. Like, I don't even know what do Catholics believe about I, the I mean, dispensationalism is nowhere um, near as popular there. Um yeah, and, and like okay. uh, um, to a certain extent like the you know, we mentioned in the previous episode that like Martin Luther got really jazzed about like one particular school of you know biblical prophecy in part right. because it gave him a good solid uh rationale for saying the pope was the antichrist yeah and, okay like so I, I think a lot of it also just ties into that like the pope okay. is an easy go-to for a lot of rapture God, watcher right. ideas of like well there's got to be somebody according to these predictions that you know deceives all of the christian believers and forms a worldwide religion that is spitting in god's eye why not the pope you know if you're a protestant who already thinks that catholics don't really believe in god sure yeah. the pope's an easy antichrist you know and, and yeah. I, it, it it's tied up a lot with that um i mean it's hard to imagine the pope assuming any kind of like net like inner like worldwide power you know beyond yeah i mean it's that that was a much it was a much more salvageable theory like in the 1600s than yeah. in like 2000 and and it's hard <laughs> to i know that the seventh day adventists still believe this don't they that that the pope is the anti i think they do i'm not sure i i you know yeah. i i don't know a lot about like some of the details of seventh day adventism but like yeah. that uh, you know especially in denominations that still hold on to a like a really really deep antipathy towards like catholicism and the catholic church you know mm -hmm. oh yeah the he may even if he's not the antichrist everybody knows the pope is buddy buddy with the antichrist yeah yeah, yeah. an agent <laughs> of the antichrist yes um yeah and so but at the same time like Lindsay's book, Hal Lindsay's book wasn't the only one. Um, and Lindsay wasn't the only person who was like, at this moment, thinking about like turning the apocalypse into sort of a mass market message, because just as his book was hitting the streets, low budget Christian filmmakers were just starting to produce some of the very first rapture films. And as far as I can tell, like the first one that really meets that definition is a movie called If Footmen Tire You, What Will Horses Do? Which is yeah. easily the worst name for a, a memorable Not movie. catchy, yeah. Yeah, um, and you can still actually find it on the Internet Archive, um, but and it feels like a real transitional life form. Like it is a weird artifact of the moment in time 
when these narratives were transitioning from like sermons and lectures to like lurid stories you tell sinners to scare them into repenting. Um, it, it was filmed by a B movie director. Um, and like most of it was, most of it is just footage of a preacher named Estes Perkle, like a real preacher. <laughs> Um, oh, that's his real name? Yeah, that's his real name. He was not a <laughs> okay. character. This is like literally okay. a sermon delivered by Estes Burkle, and he's yelling at his oh, congregation wow. in this small church about how like Cuba is going to invade America and murder Christians if everyone doesn't repent. Um, mm -hmm. But it like jumps in and out of these like flash forward visions to all of these things he's warning them about actually happening. And there's like really gruesome footage of like torture and murder and like, it like, you know, and also like lots of really terrible accents as like extras from the Atlanta area try to play Cuban and Russian soldiers. Um, <laughs> it, it's really wild. They just should not have given these people lines at all. But um, <laughs> but like it also had that like this sort of really vivid, like manic quality that mm -hmm. that like made it one of those weird like cult movies um, okay. And like the the band Negative Land sampled a bunch of clips from it for their albums, um, stuff like that. Okay. Um, but two years later, a different B movie director, um, well, actually one of the guys who'd worked on The Blob, um, mm -hmm. hit on what seemed to be the perfect formula. Um, he and uh, some collaborators wrote a script, and with a bunch of first time actors from a Christian youth group in Iowa, they okay. filmed. A thief yeah. in the night. <laughs> so they're just from a Christian youth group. Okay. I mean, they, there were some people that they had worked with before in like doing Christian films. Okay. Um, but a lot of the people in those movies were just extras mm -hmm. from local Christian congregations and youth groups. Mm -hmm. um, so like I, you can see that in if you watch a thief in the night <laughs> is that, that yeah that yeah it's through. yeah um it's very uh yeah white and and um <laughs> youth oriented it, it is very much we filmed this movie with people with like people we found at local iowan like protestant congregations that mm -hmm. is the cat um but so basically, like they they did this movie called A Thief in the Night on a shoestring budget and distributed it just essentially to Christian churches and via mail order. Um, and it it's a movie about the rapture um and the horrors of the tribulation and like how right the Bible was and how foolish everyone <laughs> was to ignore it. Um, but it yep. but unlike footman it totally immerses itself in the fictional narrative rather than treating it yeah. like an educational film strip or a recorded sermon the movie like starts moments after the rapture with all of the characters like suddenly shaken by the horrors of like millions of people disappearing and their loved ones are gone or they lost a child or a friend of mm -hmm. theirs disappeared and it follows like the chaos that starts rippling out as the world tries to deal with what happened and you know the un turning into an authoritarian government under the antichrist's control <laughs> and you know different characters flashing back to the moments in their past when people warned them about bible prophecies but they laughed it off and you know and mm -hmm. i you know i wish i had only known you know that's like that's yeah. the meat of a thief in the night it um, is yeah and it was a runaway success like made on like uh i i've i i can't remember exactly what the budget for it was um 
Let's see. It's a it's, so it was a sixty eight thousand dollar budget in today's dollars. Oh really? Wow. Yeah. I so mean, like, we watched it. We're gonna do an episode on it, and yeah, it is. Yeah. Obviously, pretty. Like, budget. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, it's not kids with a camcorder, but like a $68,000 movie in today's dollars is like, that's very it's low budget. It's almost kids with a camcorder. Yes. Yeah. And it grossed $4 million. What? Yes. What? No. Almost. And, and a huge percentage of that was from audience donations when it was shown in churches. Oh my God. Like, so that gives you like an idea of like, where this was happening and what the impact of it was. Um, it was like almost all of its showings were like in churches or like under the auspices of like a church movie night or something like that. Okay, yeah. And yeah. a lot of people weren't even told what the movie was going to be about. Um, and they were just sort of like oh, dumped no. into this like, you know, essentially psychological horror about <laughs> everyone you love being taken away, and now you're trapped in the horror I'm show. Sure, they the had all the kids there. Yeah. Yes, and and it was basically understood as a tool for scaring people into repenting or mm -hmm. motivating them to get out there and convert their friends and neighbors and loved ones. You know, right. you don't want this to happen to the people you care about. And for a lot of people, it was like legitimately traumatizing um, in large part because like uh, it was yeah. like watching a movie and then being told by everyone you were there with, this is real. This is going to happen. This isn't just a scary story. It's what the Bible prophesied. Right. Um, and it could happen at any time. Yeah. yeah. Like, and I mean, I know people just a few years older than me who really grew up with this, who were mm -hmm. sort of terrorized by, I mean, and I could have been if my parents had been more into this, but yeah. Yeah. And like, I feel like, you know, I missed the, I missed the window of time for it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Me too. Just by about five years, I think. Yeah. And because it was that they definitely showed it long after it was. Well, made. And it like spawned yeah. three sequels too. Um, like mm -hmm. over the course of like the seventies. And I think the last one was done in 82, but 82, like it had, yeah. it had four sequels that were basically like the ongoing horrors of the Antichrist's rule and persecution mm -hmm. of all the people who decided to love Jesus, even though they'd been. Were those behind. also big successes or, or, you know, I, I'm not know. sure. Um, yeah. I, I don't know, like, I don't have any numbers on like how much money those made in comparison, because that was also when there was more competition, like the field yep. of was sure. starting to get more crowded. Um, but like, you know, the, that, the thief in the night as a film, like actually played it pretty fast and loose with like dispensationalist timelines. Yeah. And, but like, it was also like relentlessly focused on human level horrors, like the despair and alienation and hopelessness and betrayal that awaited anybody who didn't make it out in the rapture. And like, it, I, I kind of think of it as like the Blair Witch project of dispensationalism. Um, yeah. yeah. You know, it, you can look back and say, oh, that was cheesy. But like it, like it was freaky. Um, mm -hmm. And in the next episode, we're going to like actually like go through A Thief in the Night and like take a closer look at it in detail. And we may even have a chance to zero in on the late great planet Earth, too. Because um, yeah. like th those two are I, I think of them sort of like as the royal family of apocalypse media. Yeah, <laughs> um, they're and important. in the years that follow, there's like a wave 
of other books and films and whole careers, like mm-hmm. rushing into this space that uh, Hal Lindsey's book and uh, Russell Doughton, the uh, the director of um, Thief in the Night, uh, that like their work kind of opened up. Mm-hmm. Um, because there had always been like theological books about this stuff marketed to like preachers and teachers or like lay Christians who just happened to want to dig into, you know, these topics. But Hal Lindsey's shtick was like tuning the like numerology and, you know, if you read it carefully, you can find the map of the future vibe to like mm-hmm. the frequency of America decline and angst and like the growing pop culture taste for mysticism. And like roughly a kajillion popular market books followed the same path in the 70s and 80s, either like uh, expounding on the same themes Lindsay staked out or Mm -hmm. like offering their own sort of unique twist. And even Lindsay like published, I think, two two sequels really quickly after it. Um, I think the first one was Satan is Alive and Well on Planet Earth, um, which was he was Mm -hmm. basically saying that based on my timeline, the Antichrist is already alive. And here, living on Earth, you know, and the other one was 1988, Countdown to Armageddon. And it specifically claimed that the rapture was going to happen in 1988. That's it. Really? He ended up having to walk that claim back. Yeah. um, Because, spoiler for everybody, the the rapture did not happen in 1988. Did not happen. But, like, there was even, like, a 1976 movie adaptation of Hal Lindsey's book, and Orson Welles did the voiceover work for it mm-hmm. and like it that just blows my mind but yeah, yeah I, I guess it shouldn't because like orson wells also did like the voice of unicron in the movie transformers so like oh okay yeah i, didn't I, know that. I don't know things like that but yeah okay uh, i was a big transformers <laughs> fan uh but, <laughs> but yeah so like orson wells got around he did he did yeah, a lot yeah. of work for a lot of projects, a lot of but, voiceovers mm-hmm. but like it, it it was very much like even if it wasn't taken deadly seriously by everybody it was just out there as okay. a as a yeah. part of culture um yeah. and, and like as the 80s rolled around um you know what i think transformers oh. is one of those things i wasn't allowed to watch because oh. you know evangelical yeah anyway yeah, yeah. Like i i got i was i was allowed to watch the transformers dungeons and dragons the cartoon obviously oh right definitely up. not um, you know, definitely which, not it's sort of like yeah. you know how about i just watch satan the cartoon show <laughs> Um, he-man he-man my mom did not like he-man yeah yeah that, that was very suspicious. i really wanted to get into it because i had this uh school friend who had all the he-man figures hey. and yeah. yeah and i i thought they were fun to play with but yeah yeah it's i i feel like everyone <sighs> who everyone who was baffled by like the anti-harry potter stuff yeah i did not um, grow like, up in that period like man you didn't live to see people saying the care bears were actually about satan and <laughs> that that was... the uh cabbage patch dolls were possessed objects mm-hmm, and the, mm-hmm, yeah mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yep. my little ponies too yeah um I f- I feel like the the listeners of this podcast are like divided into two very clear groups. <laughs> people who are listening to this portion going, "What the?" Uh, yeah, and then the people going, "Yep, yep, yep." yep. So, <laughs> Care Bears, Cabbage Patch Kids. I heard that one. And like my parents were not that weird, but during I mean during the time when I was five or six, they were that weird, and yeah, yeah they uh, were. And, and... I was not allowed to watch He Man and um. 
and like I think by the time I was like seven, I got my first Shira, and my mom did not like it. But oh, no. I, well, I mean, you yeah. know, it, if if anyone transforms, it should be by the power of Christ, not the uh, yeah. power of Grayskull. <laughs> um, but but like I think what I think is interesting is that like it it wasn't random individual like people in evangelical churches just woke up and said, you know what? I bet the Care Bears, I bet those are Satan. <laughs> there, there was a whole industry pumping out books about this. There was? Like, yes. Okay. <laughs> like the, these were ideas that came from, uh, I, I won't say church leaders, but mm-hmm. this I mean, engine... I kind of, I know this about Dungeons and Dragons. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But like this also feels like a great example of like the the weird shadow side of that um broad reach that comes from the Christian publishing industry. Like mm-hmm. it it it's very easy for it to turn into like a you know tail wagging the dog scenario where the beliefs of a broad swath of the Christian you know, culture can end up reflecting essentially market trends in what's mm-hmm. being written about and published by Christian publishers, mm-hmm. whether or not it makes any sense or is even quote theologically sound. Um, but like, yeah. Yeah. like, oh, oh, and you know, a while back, one of the questions that I think popped up was um, this idea of UPC codes and barcodes being the mark of the beast. Yep. Um, well, uh, you know, in digging around for this episode, I believe I found ground zero for that. Um, there's a book in, I think, 1980 by Mary Stuart Ralph, who uh, she's just a Christian writer who wrote and published mm-hmm. When Your Money Fails, and then a sequel about two years later, The New Money System, um, mm-hmm. that like explicitly laid out the claim that efforts to like globalize the banking industry and the rise of credit <laughs> cards and like even the concept of barcodes and UPC codes were all part of the Antichrist's plan to lock everybody. Wait, into the this came out when? Uh, 80. When did, I mean, we've had credit cards for a long time. Yeah, but like it, she was arguing right. that the rise in adoption of credit cards and then okay. becoming more ubiquitous was yeah. part of the plan to like basically kill cash money and make everyone buy into this global antichrist system yeah and then then there's this idea that that uh people who don't get the mark of the beast will not be able to buy or sell goods exactly right so that's yeah that's where that comes from and like she you know the things like if you if you get direct deposit um you know if if you have a paycheck that is you know deposited into your bank every every two weeks that the ACH system of bank, of interbank transactions that drives that that's one of the things that she called out as like part of the antichrist system so like direct deposit also a sign of the end times um and th- like one of the sequels to a thief in the night actually has like the whole UPC barcodes as the mark of the beast thing but it yeah. came out a year after her book interesting um, so, so like okay what about by the time when we were children, it was the computer chip implanted in the body that yeah. was you know where that came from or so the the idea this like by the eighties in particular, mm-hmm. everything was sort of 
turning into kind of a mishmash. There were so many different theories about like what the mark could be or who <laughs> was going to be the Antichrist that it wasn't even really tied to any particular like theological approach or, oh. you know, or system of interpretation. It was mostly just authors writing books and saying, I think I figured out who the Antichrist is, or I think I figured out the year that it's going to happen. And that engine of Christian publishing amplified that. And mm -hmm. it was also amplified by the fact that by that time, like well-known pastors and preachers were also sort of expected to become published authors too. And, yeah. you know, even some of the, some of the, the books that came out in that period were like just essentially badly ghost written novelizations of mm -hmm. a particular pastor's theological take and some mm -hmm. predictions and okay. like, you know, if you look at a bunch of books from that era about the end times that were quote novels, a large percentage of them were ghost written and okay. then put out under a particular pastor's name. Really? Um, okay. One, one of the authors though, that um, was a really prolific in the eighties in particular was um, a pastor by the name of Michael Yusuf. Um, mm -hmm. And like, he he sort of existed in the he he really came on the scene in like the that boundary time between like when there hadn't been many novelizations of the end times it was mostly like movies and then books about how to survive the end times or how to escape the end times or what you need to know about Bible prophecy. Mm -hmm. And Michael Yusuf pumped out, I think, at least half a dozen novels about the end times in the early to, early to late 80s mm -hmm. um, as the Christian fiction market was really taking off. Um, and it's... It's very interesting because I read, I think, every single one of his novels when I was. He's growing. Egyptian. That's yeah. Wow. Um, and it became a Christian convert. Yep. Oh boy, and, that's and that's and a ton of his an books. Story. Really? And a ton of his books now are about like how Muslims are dangerous and deceptive and evil, and they're going to destroy. Of course, America. they are. Yeah. That's, um. Yeah. But like, at the time, like his sort of early books. Mm -hmm were um they were all like really focused on the antichrist and his rise to power or some variation of it um wow. they were like well, i think one of them uh was about like a secret um secret group of celebrities who were getting orders from satan on how to corrupt america and the church and bring about the end times and okay um hmm. like the books were you know with titles like earth king and man of peace which is you know deeply <laughs> deeply terrifying because yeah, everybody knows so it says that there will be peace during the time of the antichrist so right that everyone will think oh it's so peaceful because That's he's great. reigning you know yeah and yeah like in the book the mastermind and the voice which has nothing to do with mm -hmm. the current television show the voice very different premise but um but like all of his books interestingly enough ended with the apocalypse being averted by good right. Christians and like managing to stop things before they reach some critical tipping. But don't they, this has been always the confusing part of this for me. Don't they want these things to come about? Well, like, that, why that's, are they always trying to stop them or that's, that's the thing. It's like, it's kind of like, 
it's in poor taste to explicitly try to make the apocalypse happen. But... but they no, they seem. I mean, genuinely fearful when they th- see things that they think are related to the end times. And I never understood that because don't you? I mean, don't you see I, this as a fulfillment of prophecy? I don't know. But at the same time, the prophecy also includes like you know two thirds of the world being murdered. You know, I know. <laughs> so like, but if so you're like, gonna be taken up first, you know. Well, <laughs> and I, I think. This is where, like, this is where I think that understanding, like, that way distant past idea of apocalyptic literature as mm-hmm. being, like, a way of engaging with uncertainty right, really starts to come back into play. Mm-hmm. And, like, the popularity of this as a pop culture genre is less about laying out a theology per se, although it often reflects a particular theological bent, like mm-hmm. and more of like a an attempt to tell stories about what we can imagine as Christians. Mm-hmm. What you know, what kind of what what is the limit of our imagination? How how can we you know what can we do if we face evil and stuff like that? Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, aside from being like full of like just eye-popping racial and religious stereotypes and like cringe-inducingly bad like just incredibly shallow like visions of like so what would make an atheist tick what does motivate them like you know all of that stuff is like in spades in you know in in most of these books Mm -hmm. um a lot of them like are really about the anxieties of Christian life in a modern yeah. world. Um, mm-hmm. But just amped up to a million because you've got this apocalypse happening or, you know, or the the evil, you know, the evil diabolical celebrities who are trying to, you know, destroy the world or, or whatever. Um, right. And, you know, the at, at the same time, like the the 80s and 90s also saw lots of straight to video production of movies mm-hmm. um most of them were actually being bankrolled by uh the same televangelists who were also doing like tv shows preaching about the mm-hmm. end times okay. um, like jack van impey and michael hagee um mm-hmm. who you know you may recognize from like late yeah. night tv bible prophecy shows yeah. on your local christian uhf station um, they both funded studios that went out and produced movies like Apocalypse 1, 2, 3, and 4, and The Omega <laughs> Code, and The End wow. of the Harvest, and, you know, like stuff like that. And mm-hmm. one of the one of my absolute favorite recurring tropes of all these films is that, like, every single one is seems to be required by law to have, like, a long expository scene where a CNN anchor interviews religious scholars and experts who, like, try to explain away the rapture without admitting the Bible was right. Mm-hmm. And then one of them always ends up caving in and saying, yes, like, oh, the Christians were right. We should have all listened. And they, like, cut off his microphone. Too late never, now. You know, yep. You're too late, to... suckers. <laughs> um, it, it's, like, such a common scene. It's, it's, it's like, it, it, yeah, it, it's it's very obviously like a kind of fan service mm-hmm. <laughs> for the viewers of of these uh, films. But um, and, you know, it like Pat Robertson, yep. you, people have probably heard of Pat Robertson, ran for president in 1988, washed out, I you know, that, but yeah, yeah. Um, 
And he was one of the televangelists who seized on George W or George Bush's comments about a new world order emerging mm -hmm. after the fall of the Berlin Wall and the wind right. down of the Soviet Union. Yep. And like he almost immediately turned around a book titled The New World Order. Yeah, um, I remember that. They don't it, like that phrase at all. It, it is wild like i remembered it as being like oh boy he's you know he's really you know getting into some you know complicated stuff that i haven't read about before like <laughs> when i read it in 92 but like I, I i went back and i looked at it i was like oh my gosh this is like it it was it explicitly tied classic conspiracy theories like the illuminati the freemasons wealthy jewish bankers you know the trilateral oh commission oh my god really and into the no, narrative just... of like global communism and American decline under the no. Carter administration and the march towards the end times and like tied this all into so uh, like, deeply anti-Semitic too. like, I mean, yeah. the, the, the thing is, is he was also like one of those very like pro-Israel, you he know, types. talking about some kind of cabal of Jewish bankers. That's not he, well, he on. didn't, he, he never explicitly calls them Jewish bankers. That's, he does yeah. talk about the okay. Rothschilds though. Well, and and, well, that's you know, what he means. Yeah, that's pretty right. Explicit. And like, I I think that I mean, I know that when I read it at the time, I didn't even understand the connection yeah, between but, yeah, those people. You were homeschooled, though. Yeah, right. But... I was not exactly a worldly wise consumer <laughs> of anti-Semitic conspiracy right. theories. Yeah. I, I but like the lines were clearly being drawn there. Right. Right. Um, and oh my god! I, and like he eventually adapted that material into a novel called The End of the Age, but mm -hmm. like it, it was basically like sort of a loose fictional blanket draped over the skeleton of like his particular cluster of theology and conspiracy theories. Like there's you know there wasn't much to recommend it other than I, I do remember seeing the book at Christian bookstores, but I yeah I, I I didn't I rarely read Christian books I I did listen to a little too much of the music but um. oh I, I I like had that <laughs> I had that it's straight into my veins at the time um, <laughs> yeah yeah and in part because that zine that I was publishing uh, I would contact Christian publishers and send them a list of books I was going to review for yeah. my magazine and then <laughs> a crate of Christian pulp books would arrive mm -hmm. a week later. Um, so like a lot of the Christian publishers like Zondervan and Crossway that published all of Michael Youssef's books or whatever, I was mm -hmm. like talking to their publicists once a month and yeah. saying, you know, like, what's, <laughs> what's coming out, you know? And, um, but like the, the, you know, Pat Robertson's new world order book is like the first high profile one I was ever able to find that started really explicitly tying in the broader world of conspiracy theories and explicit yeah, this politics. Yeah, the New World Order, it has some roots in groups like the John Birch Society, I think. And yep. The, yeah, and, and, and it, ha it's, it, it fears about encroaching communism and... But, but is used in, in by uh, dispensationalists in, in right. referencing any kind of like worldwide cooperation to, to yep. <laughs> so it, it's it's the big boogeyman of anyone cooperating at a global level right um now there, there's there's one last book i wanted to mention because it's particularly interesting both as like a very it, it very quickly followed pat robertson's book it was published in uh, i think 92 mm -hmm. um 
but it's one of I think it's one of the first novels that really sold big, at least by the you know by the standards of this genre, mm-hmm. and reflects that sort of emerging conspiratorial politicized view of these rapture themes. It's mm-hmm. uh, it was so. <laughs> It was written by a guy named Larry Burkett, um, uh-huh. who was weirdly enough a Christian financial advisor. And he, like, at the time that he, before he wrote this, he had already written a bunch of books about like wise investing and why it's important to pay down debts and be a good steward. And it's important to tithe and support your local church and stuff like that. And I remember him being on like on radio call in shows when I was a kid giving advice on like how to pay down debt, you know, and be responsible. Yeah. Very vanilla stuff. Mm-hmm. And then in 92, he dropped his first novel novel titled the illuminati <laughs> which you know right there you know, you've, you've got a title that uh you know and like the cover of the first edition was like the the picture of the all-seeing eye at the top of the pyramid from the dollar bill just like zoomed yep. in to fill the whole cover of the book i i and, remember seeing that and having that recommended to me i did not read it though i i, I was a little bit like a snobby about the things i read even as a kid I, <laughs> good good call good call generally honestly. i did read one of those at, at one point but yeah not that's not and, that into and, it what what I find interesting is looking back and like even at the time when I was basically like mainlining rapture books, <laughs> but, um, even, you know, at the time it was fairly unique in that um, it was way more of a political thriller than most of the other end times fiction that was coming out at the time. And the core plot of it was really similar to the stuff that Pat Robertson was claiming was mm-hmm. really actually truly going on in his New World Order book. Oh um, my gosh. It's like, so it came out in 92, but it's set in 2001 after oh, eight no. years under a Democratic president has of left America in ruins, in ruins and vulnerable in a dangerous world. <laughs> um, and, you know, and, you know, things are so bad that the Constitution is being suspended and protest who all just happen to be faithful Christians march on Washington DC and are framed for violence and beaten and arrested. Oh. Um, Did they yeah, go in it, the Capitol building by any? Uh, <laughs> you know, I'd have to double check, but like it, it like it, it was, it's all very like weirdly Correct. on yeah. point. Yeah. Um, and the, but the real action in the story is very behind the scenes mm-hmm. <clears throat> because America's downfall is actually being engineered by ancient druids um, <laughs> who became the Illuminati, who became the Freemasons, who formed the Trilateral Commission. Ancient and, druids, know. like, they've been a, a, alive for thousands of years? What do you mean by ancient I mean, it's an, an order Like an of ancient, ancient order of... Okay, yeah, an know, ancient order of... They built Stonehenge, and now they're going to tear down America. Um, and... <laughs> And, you know, they've infiltrated everywhere and they're pulling the strings to bring down America and the world and usher in, like, you know, the reign of the Antichrist. Okay. That, that's that's basically, like, the background plot. But, like, the A plot of the novel, like, the sort of, mm. you know, I, the Clancy-esque political thriller part is that mm-hmm. there's, like, this computer hacker named Jeff, which is why I loved it when I was, you know, <laughs> when I was a young teenager. Uh-huh. Um, you know, there's a computer hacker named Jeff who's a brilliant 
programmer who's building a global data net computer network that'll be the basis of all commerce. But, you know, he realizes it's going to be used for nefarious purposes like persecuting Christians. Mm -hmm. And he bails to join the resistance. And the resistance (laughs) is basically a bunch of Christian militia groups. Of course Um, it is. That's that's awesome. and, And they're like holding the flickering candle of the real America as like the cancer from within takes over the government. Um, wow. And, uh, and the Illuminati was also one of those end times books that ended with the apocalypse being averted. Do you want to like, know who recommended that book to me? Incidentally, the family that in which one of the sons became, was outed as a proud boy recently. So yeah, that's so I mean, interesting that, that that was, um, it, <laughs> it checks out. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> The, it, the militia activity, wow. Because, like, the, the ending of the Illuminati is basically this faithful remnant of persecuted Christians on the run who are forming these militias out in the, you know, out in the heartland mm-hmm. um, are helped by secret holdouts in the FBI and the Secret Service who are still faithful to the Constitution. But the Illuminati oh, conspiracists boy. who are pulling the strings, they slink back into the shadows and it's clear that like they'll eventually be back and we've all got to be on guard. Is this like, a series? Is it, is no, there, there's, oh, I think only it, one book. Seems like it was probably meant to be a series. If it, it was mean, a hit. Up, that's so surprising. that, that it, it sold millions. Um, oh my and God. Cool. It, a second edition of it even came out after he died. Um, curiously enough, they altered the book. Um, like instead of being set in 2001 because the second edition was published in like 2005 they changed mm-hmm. it to i think 2000 um i think it was two, either 2011 or something like that they, they basically forwarded fast forwarded four presidential oh, administrations yeah. okay. so they could just reuse the same plot points but without embarrassingly you know yeah. anchoring the predictions in like what things would look like after clinton yeah, yeah. um mm-hmm. <laughs> but like yeah, it, it. I mean, even you know, they they did an updated second edition. It was popular enough, yeah. um, and I think so. I'm I'm sort of at a loss for me to describe, like, because I read that book when I was a kid. Yeah, and I found it like very exciting, and mm-hmm. I had I had no idea of what some of the real underlying themes that were present in that plot actually meant and what their origins were. Um, But like, you know, I was, I was just super excited that there was a computer nerd named Jeff who was, you know, the main character in this Mm -hmm, book and who was a hero. Like who wouldn't be jazzed about that. But like it also, it, 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 that, idea that we've been talking about since day one of the apocalyptic narrative giving a a frame of understanding for conflict Mm -hmm. and a way of envisioning one's role in a confusing world where Mm -hmm. things keep happening and you don't know why um that's the the frame that's being offered by so many of these things is explicitly like increasingly about corruption from within in america and an increasingly militant sort of holdout i'm really troubled by the presence of um you know malicious and as a as a, as a positive in, i mean uh, and, and to be fair to larry burkett mm. even in the book 
there's very little actual violence that is actually ever committed by any of the good guy characters and it is deeply controversial and almost immediately afterwards like all of the christians decide that no we can't do this this is you know this is this is wrong we can't go down that path but like at the same time you're building a heavily armed compound and yeah, you know I mean... like it it's it it's in in a lot of ways it, it in retrospect it feels less like engaging with the moral complexity of resistance to authoritarianism and, to, and, and, you know, and dictatorship and more about putting a fig leaf on, you know, putting a fig leaf of respectability and, uh, oh, we would never want to do this, but on white supremacist to. Christian violence. And yeah. Yeah. And mm -hmm. it like, so that's, it, it's very strange looking back at that and right. also remembering that like, I think just very quickly after that book came out is when the Oklahoma city bombing took place. Right. And like it, it, it was at a point in time where these things were actually being acted upon. Um, you know, this mm -hmm. concept of resistance to the government in the name of the constitution was happening um now we know that he read the turner diaries and and uh, timothy like mcveigh, that. Timothy mcveigh. It, yeah yes um i don't know that he I, I, you may have seen something like that whether no. he was he familiar with any of the christian no no i i, I okay. my you know the intent there isn't to like draw a line of like causation right, 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 between right. these apocalypse novels and that but rather that like in the broader Christian market of popular fiction, sure. narratives about these ways of seeing conflict between the state and the faithful were becoming increasingly popular. Yeah. And I think, yeah, it's like that, that idea of understanding your place in a world that doesn't make sense either because you know you think you're in the right and everyone else is opposed to you or because you believe a bunch of prophecies have been promised to you and they keep not happening mm -hmm. or because you think that you know the changes in society are tantamount to persecution of you or whatever like the apocalyptic narrative offers an explanation for that mm -hmm. but it also implies a path forward like there is an inexorable like current in the apocalyptic narrative towards a final confrontation um and the apocalypse industry like the like sausage factory of bad novels and breathless predictions about who's going to be the antichrist and like you know people left behind and mm -hmm. warnings about Russia getting ready to invade Israel and you know, that stuff that's even more complicated because that industry both like reflects the beliefs mm -hmm. of Christians and shapes them too, because yeah. it tells stories about like the kind of future we can imagine, how we should engage with or how we can imagine engaging with those futures. And like a lot of pop culture, it offers a set of lenses to see the world even if people haven't explicitly studied and like bought into a specific theological framework or a school of eschatology. And like there's, a, right. I think, a 2014 poll from PRRI about global warming in America that um, I, I came across yesterday doing some research 
And it was something like 40, 42% of evangelicals at that time in 2014 saw and acknowledged various environmental disasters and climate change, but attributed it to the end times rather than man-made right. global So, warming. of course, not something any humans need to do anything about, right? Or, or even something that could be done. That could, yeah. Like, you know, it's... If we really want to stop those things, the goal is, you know, get everyone to follow God and, right. you know, prevent the apocalypse, not change how much how much petroleum we're using or something like that. Mm. Um, and, you know, as we talked about in, in the earlier episode, like the underlying idea of that final great struggle between good and evil and the war between Satan and the faithful saints of God and stuff like that, like that way of seeing and understanding both oneself and one's political opponents has had a significant impact on the Christian right. Like they don't have to be into the specifics of dispensationalist theology to buy into like the idea that ecumenicalism is fundamentally dangerous or that yeah. things done by the UN are scary, bad yeah. because of that. Or to even look at a warning on Fox News about the war on Christmas that may oh, sound yeah. unhinged to most people. Yeah. But if you're steeped in these narratives, there's an existing line of thought for this. And it sounds like, ah, of course, mm -hmm, this is what I've been mm -hmm. expecting. This is how it begins. Not, wait, that's just a different holiday cup at Starbucks, right. you know? Yeah. And I think that idea of the role of the apocalypse in the religious right, it, I think it's important to, you mm -hmm. know, if you're looking closely at it, there are some distinct theological elements of it. And, you know, we've touched on a bunch of those, but like more than anything, it's like a set of lenses. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's, it's this sort of like what you feel the arc of history is mm -hmm. and its inherent inevitability and how that causes you to regard what's happening today. Yeah. And I, I think that's, for me at least, that's the significant takeaway from this stuff. Um, right. And I mean, this is a pretty apocalyptic time in human history and <laughs> yeah, they that's fair. <laughs> and and i you know their politics is is um is very destructive in terms of you know <laughs> getting through the, this period and um i mean both in the sense that yeah. like there are a lot of problems that we're facing that require large-scale cooperation. Yeah, and they're they're <laughs> suspicious of that, and uh, yeah. Um, and that, like, anything that is global cooperation is inherently smells like the Antichrist's plot, yeah. you know? And I, I don't mean that, I don't mean that in, a, like, a mocking way. Mm. Um, it's even if somebody regards specific predictions about the end times with a sort of very jaundiced and skeptical eye like oh you know how Lindsay's changed his mind about what year it's going to be 10 times mm -hmm. i'm not one of those people you know the frames that have become a really deeply infused part of evangelical and christian right culture yeah are still very prevalent even you know even outside of like hardliner you know, I've got the rapture timeline on my wall, folks. Mm -hmm. 
it's themes that can resonate when they're used to communicate about these things. And I think that's probably one of the most important things I think to keep in mind, Mm -hmm. but yeah, (laughs) this, this has turned into a, a, into a longish episode and I I apologize, (laughs) but like it, it's, it's been, it's been fascinating in part because I consumed so much of this stuff in the past coming back to it with fresh eyes, coming right. back to it with historical context yeah, and even revisiting some of the material itself right. rather than just vague memories of it mm-hmm. has been really eye-opening. Oh, I'm sure. Um, so next time we are going to discuss, we're going to watch and discuss the uh, A Thief in the Night, which if you would like to watch it before you listen to the episode, it's free on IMDb. Uh, on their streaming app so you can do that um, i think the the internet archive also has a copy of it that you can get you know it's okay. it's in a couple of different places it's sort of it has made the rounds it's as a widely artifact. available for free <laughs> streaming so yeah um so um yeah this is christian Rightcast. we are on rightcast.substack.com if you would like to help um uh, donate to what we're doing here to help keep us in business and so uh, allow us to do these kinds of deep dives. Um, and we're also on Twitter at uh, at CWriteCast, and we're on our individual Twitters at Kristen Rawls and at Eaton. Uh, please check us out online, and we really appreciate you joining us here. 